Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. For as little as $3 a month, just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. Alternatively, if you just want to do a simple donation, you can go to my website, www.canadaehx.com, and click Donate. Every dollar you give helps keep the podcast going. Today, I'm talking with historian Roger Sarti. He has been a historian for the Department of Defense. He is currently a professor at the Wilfrid Laurier University, and we're talking about a book that he helped compile all about the Halifax Explosion. Now, if you don't know about the Halifax Explosion, well, I actually encourage you to check out This is a Disaster. Last year, I actually did an episode with them talking about the Halifax Explosion, which was insane. So go check that out if you need some background. But we're also going to talk about it in this interview. So let's just get to the interview. To, to talking about the, the book now, uh, it was another author who kind of compiled... The notes and stuff, I guess, is from what I understand. And then uh, the, you put it all together because that author passed away. Yeah, it's actually the author left a, a complete manuscript uh, in, that he last worked on in 2007. And so uh, my role was to clean it up and update it. And I worked hand in glove. Uh, the manuscript was discovered by his children after he died in 2015. And uh, so the whole project was put together by his son, uh, David Scanlon. Okay. And they brought me in. Uh, he, he got it accepted by uh, the Wilfrid Laurier University Press, my school, and they asked me to act as the overall editor for the project. So what did all that entail, going over uh, these, the, the, the manuscript of a book that nobody even knew was really out there until just recently? Yes, well, it's uh, actually, it was well known in uh, people interested in the Halifax explosion. Everybody knew he was working on it. He worked on it off and on from the 80s, uh, right down till uh, uh, 2007. So it was generally known in a small community. Um, and I'd, I'd sort of roughly heard of it. And uh, it, was, it was a fascinating project because uh, Joe Scanlon was a very distinguished journalist and he was a specialist in disaster studies. Uh, later in his life, he had talked about the role of media in disasters. He was a, a world leader in that field. So his approach to the manuscript was uh, as what he called disaster research, looking at it as an example of disaster. And he's got lots of neat comparisons to 9-11 and the tsunami out in, the, in Japan and the Pacific. Um, and my main role as the historian was, uh, Joe was an incredible journalist. Uh, he had, God, he started his career back in the 50s with the Toronto Star. He was their bureau chief and uh, in Washington in the 60s for the Kennedy administration. I mean, he'd been everywhere, done everything. Uh, but he, he wasn't an historian and he had gathered tons of stuff from the National, uh, from our archives, Library and Archives Canada, that had never been used before. And I discovered in going through it, he had used it as a, as a disaster researcher, but he, he wasn't, um, and no reason he should be familiar with the Canadian government in the World War I area, <laughs> era. <laughs> and uh, he discovered a lot of stuff on how important the military was in saving the, <clears throat> the city from the disaster. But again, he didn't know the esoterica of the uh, Canadian military in the First World War, you know, nor should he. And in fact, that's what I, I'm a native of Halifax and I got interested in the military down there when I was a kid. So I've spent my entire life 
looking at the uh, Army and the Navy in Halifax. So I guess that's why they asked me to, to be the overall editor. Um, why does the Halifax explosion still, you know, over 100 years later, Canadians still know about it? It was uh, a very brief heritage minute, uh, the Coleman. But why does, uh, why does this explosion still something that Canadians are so interested in? It's, uh, well, it's lived on, uh, as a native Haligonian, you know, relatives of mine went through the explosion. Uh, my, my great-grandfather was uh, from New Glasgow. He came in and did emergency surgery. So it lived down there. But interestingly, um, there was a, a book written by a, a priest in town, an Anglican priest, um, Prince, Henry, uh, Samuel Henry Prince, in the 1920s. And then a famous novel written about it by uh, our, our first great national novelist, as he's called, uh, Hugh McLennan, Barometer Rising in 1941. But there was never any really good historical research done on it until there's a, uh, a good book by a British author, but it's still fairly journalistic in the 50s. And no one began to look at the detailed records in depth, believe it or not, until the 1990s. And in the 1990s, I was a, a heritage, uh, or I was a government historian in the 90s. And it was a fascinating time to do that, because in the 90s, I think because of the end of the Cold War, Canadians became fascinated by their history, and especially the two world wars. So what's interesting is it's been sort of a, a great I know, part of the myth of, the, of Canada and the First World War, but no one's really looked at the details of what happened until the really starting in the 1990s. And a lot of the best work is just coming out now. Uh, when I research uh, about that, um, is like when you look at uh, Halifax itself, it didn't really have any kind of memorial, I think, for almost 50 years. Uh, there wasn't really any kind of remembrance of it. It was kind of, let's forget that that happened because it was so terrible. Does that kind of play into, into that whole thing that we're only now kind of really rediscovering it, really learning more about it uh, over 100 years later? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As Canadians, we are very, very unusual. <laughs> I mean, Halifax is a special place. I mean, it's a, I remember growing up as a kid, as I always tell my students, no one could afford to fly in those days. And it was 24 hours to the nearest major city, which was Montreal. You had to go on the train. It was 24 hours. So it's a, it's a little world unto itself. Um, and so it was always well known there, but it, it would sort of lived in all of the families. So no one really looked at it as, as a special event. But thinking of Canada more generally, a bizarre fact, and I only know about it because I was involved in it, is our federal government did not put any sort of a Canadian national memorial on the Normandy beaches until the year 2000, if you can believe that. <laughs> And I know I was there, I was part of the government de delegation that dedicated the first memorials. <laughs> so uh, as Canadians, we're, 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 we often um, don't play up our past. Uh, and, uh, and then the other part of it is that um, uh, the Maritimes are uh, you know, way out at one end of the country and sort of a, a little civilization under themselves. If they'll forgive me for saying that, I'm one of them, so I, I should know. <laughs> Um, what are some interesting things that people will find uh, reading this book? Maybe things that they didn't know. Um, they'll find what knocked me between the eyes. And the reason I was so excited about it is that uh, Joe shows that it was the uh, Canadian army that uh, played a huge role in Halifax's recovery. And this has been never been recognized. And um, 
I glommed onto this because I've studied the Canadian Army in Halifax since I was a, since I was a little kid. And a little known fact is Halifax was so important to uh, British Empire strategy that there was actually a full British Army garrison of uh, nearly 2,000 guys there till 1906. And a little known fact in Canadian history is one of the few responsible things Canada did for defense was when the British garrison left in 1906. They did so because the, the government of Wilfrid Laurier agreed to put in a proper Canadian professional garrison. And believe it or not, we did it. And so when the war, World War I breaks out, uh, as a defended harbor, Halifax is ready to go. And uh, it gets more and more important through the war because uh, Britain's survival and actually France's survival depends more and more on supplies from Canada and the US uh, shipped through Halifax. So Halifax becomes vitally important. And by 1917, when the explosion occurs, there's um, close to uh, 5,000 troops in Halifax as part of the garrison and also troops training to go overseas. Halifax also becomes the main transport center to send troops overseas. And what's never been recognized is uh, as soon as the explosion happens, uh, the army spins into action. And in particular, the army had a fantastic medical organization because Halifax was where all the injured soldiers returned um, to Canada. And that was their first stop. And so uh, Halifax had two big military hospitals and a very large um, military medical establishment. And these guys, uh, they were headed by a, a surgeon from Ottawa who'd gotten into the army during the war, served overseas, come back to organize the home medical services. And um, this fabulous Colonel, uh, he, was, he was actually a surgeon, but he was a Colonel through the war uh, by the name, wonderful name of Frederick McKelvey Bell. He was the head of medical <laughs> services in Halifax. And he immediately coordinated everything. Uh, Halifax had, Thankfully, it was a provincial capital, so it had the big provincial hospital, the Victoria General, which is still there, and various other provincial hospitals. And McKelvey Bell got everybody together and made the system work. And they treated, uh, in the first 24 hours, they had to treat um, probably in the order of uh, five, 7,000 badly injured people. And they managed to do it. It was simply incredible. And even while that is happening, uh, the tragedy of the explosion is that uh, Halifax was a wooden city. So when the explosion occurs and all these wooden buildings are knocked down, they then catch on fire. It's like a scene from hell. And again, uh, the soldiers were very, very quick uh, to come in from the forts out on the harbor and uh, immediately begin rescue work. As well, there was a lot of, um, I happen to be interested in the army and Joe has pioneering work on the army, but as well, uh, it's the irony. The explosion takes place because it's a munitions ship that's coming into Halifax because of Halifax's role as a big convoy port. Uh, but also because it's a convoy port, uh, there's uh, some big British warships there with excellent crews. Uh, the Canadian Navy dockyard is devastated by the explosion, but all these Royal Navy crews come rushing ashore. And there's also, uh, there's initially two um, U.S. Navy ships there. Two others see the explosion over the horizon and come rushing in. They see it from like, uh, I think it's 50 miles, like around 90 kilometers out to sea, and they come rushing in. Uh, so that part of the story is well known, but what isn't known is it's the Canadian Army that sets up the structure, organizes all of these people, and does an absolutely magnificent uh, uh, recovery job. Um, when, you, uh, when you look at the Halifax explosion, 
anybody who kind of reads about it knows about Vincent Coleman and saving, you know, a train load of passengers. So why is Vincent so well known, but the army and its massive role in the, the recovery, the saving of people, why is that lesser known uh, considering they probably saved many more lives than, than say Coleman? Yes, yeah, and one of the things that uh, Professor Scanlon shows, uh, Scan uh, Joe was a rail became a railway freak when he did this book, <laughs> and uh, he discovered yes, Coleman was heroic. Um, he did linger to, to send out a warning message, um, but what Joe has shown is the the railway telegraph system was simply amazing, and uh, within minutes, uh, Coleman's message was important. But within minutes, there are all sorts of messages uh, going along the uh, Maritimes um, railway telegraph system. And in fact, uh, emergency trains coming in almost immediately. But fascinating that you asked this because we were in the final stages of editing. And um, uh, David Scanlon, who's the son of Joe said, well, what about this Coleman story? And I said, oh God, everybody knows the Coleman story. That's straight ahead. And he said, Raj, can you get me some background on it? And I looked and it turns out um, on the 10th of December, the Coleman worked uh, for the Intercolonial Railway, which was part of what's now Canadian National Railways. And on 10th of December, a Canadian, uh, or it was called then Canadian Government Railways, issued a press release <laughs> in which they spoke about Coleman's heroism. So the whole story goes back to this press release that comes out on the 10th of December. Um, on the Army and the Navy, it's a sadder story. Um, people in Halifax were infuriated, of course. Uh, you know, there's um, probably um, over, close to 2,000 people killed, 9,000 injured, hundreds uh, their eyesight damaged or blinded. And uh, they were looking for scapegoats. And initially, the population blamed uh, the Canadian Navy. And um, not to belabor the story, the government found that quite convenient. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just quiet <laughs> and let the population blame the Navy because our Canadian Navy was very new, it was very small, it wasn't very popular. Uh, and it turns out what Joe shows uh, in enormous detail, it's superb, only a journalist could do this, was the government was also happy uh, to, to sort of let the, the military um, uh, carry the can on the whole thing. Um, and uh, the, the, the fascinating story that, that comes out is the garrison commander, uh, Major General Thomas Benson, who did such superb work, rescue work. Um, the army fired him uh, in uh, early February, 1918, just two months after the explosion. And it turns out the reason they fired him, and you'll love this, this is such a Canadian story, is there were workers flooding into Halifax for relief work. And the local building companies got together with representatives of the various government departments involved in reconstruction. This is the railway department, uh, marine and fisheries. And the local companies said, we're poor down here. We can't afford to pay your central Canadian wages. So they agreed to put on a, a secret wage deal to keep the wages for all the carpenters and plumbers and all the rest of it. Uh, to keep those wages down. Um, very shortly, the situation was so critical, uh, the private companies began to break the deal just in order to get workers. And Benson said, my God, it's urgent that we rebuild the barracks, that we help people rebuild their houses. And Benson cleared the army engineers to pay 
the higher wage rates. And uh, 10 days later, the government fired him. (laughs) (laughs) And there is a bitter irony. They sent down uh, Francois Lessard, Major General Francois Lessard, who is a general the government trusted more. They always trusted him with politically sensitive files. And Lessard got down there and the government is eagerly hearing how he's gonna clear things up. And he writes back and he says, essentially in modern language, you guys have no idea the hell on earth down here. We urgently need reconstruction work immediately. Uh, Benson did exactly the right thing in in matching the local companies who were breaking the wage deal and giving higher wages. And I am going to do the same. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) Um, but uh, the, uh, yeah, the big story is um, the government was keeping a very, very low profile on this. In fact, they were walking on eggshells because uh, some of the stuff that um, Joe highlights that other people had begun to dig into is the government realized that this was really the fault of um, the administration of the war. And uh, probably the larger part of the fault came with the British Admiralty's administration of shipping. They were the ones who sent this uh, badly loaded explosive ship into Halifax Harbor. Um, So you can say, yeah, it's the fault of the the British. On the other hand, the ship had loaded in New York. And so it it was actually, it was a French ship and a French company that loaded it, but they're using uh, American know-how, American labor. So you could argue, yeah, it was the Americans who did it too. And of course, the Canadian government has a big share of this because um, when the war broke out, everything in the port of Halifax came under government control. Everything came under direct government control. And so the government realized that this was really the fault of the, the, of the allied governments, if you like. And uh, we, we do, uh, Joe helped to reveal some of the correspondence uh, where uh, the lawyers involved in the investigation say, well, of course, we're not going to directly raise the question of liability. And so uh, there you have it. So the government in general keeps very, very quiet on the explosion, but authorizes very large amounts of money and sets up the special as a, as a sort of a mini government agency, the Halifax Relief Commission, which in general does very generous work in Halifax. It doesn't ultimately shut down, I think until the 1970s, uh, distributing pensions. And initially it, it uh, supervises uh, uh, more permanent reconstruction of the North End, but so that that's the story. That the Canadian government can there are elements that it can be proud of, elements that it, it should be pretty embarrassed about. <laughs> um, when you uh, you look at, uh, I guess the the most re- that recent explosion, um, I'm trying to remember where it was. I think it was Beirut, and yes, the size of that. Is it hard for Canadians to kind of wrap their minds around? just the size of this explosion, because I think that ex- the Halifax explosion was double what we saw in Beirut. And that was, we actually have video of that and that was big. So to think okay. of something twice as big, it, it, do we have trouble kind of wrapping our minds around that? It's not an atomic bomb, but it's not like a regular explosion. Yeah, it was, well, in fact, and uh, Joe uh, in his work, a great journalist dug out a factoid I didn't even know. And that is when the, um, Manhattan Project under the US Army is building the atomic bomb in the Second World War. Among their research studies is the effect of massive explosion on Halifax. So the Halifax explosion features in the Manhattan Project because it was that big an explosion. 
I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of dispute. Uh, was it the, the, the seventh biggest man-made explosion before Hiroshima? Or is it the sixth? You know, that, that's all in dispute. But it was huge. We do know the ship was loaded with, uh, I think, close to 3,000 tons of high explosive. And it all went up together, <laughs> which, is, which is a massive hit. And yeah, it is impossible to imagine, except we've got, um, and again, Joe is wonderful at, at pulling some of this together. We have incredible eyewitness accounts. So we know exactly what went on. Uh, it, um, there was a mini tsunami um, <clears throat> down on the harbor front because you know, it, uh, the, the force of the explosion spread out the harbor water, then it came rushing back on shore. And so, yeah, it is hard to imagine, but we do have all of these chilling eyewitness accounts. And um, one of the, the gruesome things that I wasn't aware of um, until I read Joe's manuscript is that immediately after the explosion, uh, the city was inundated by what they called black rain. And uh, what it was was the explosive components plus all of the coal dust, because this was in winter and everybody had their coal furnaces on. Uh, Lord knows what else. Uh, there was literally a black rain of awful uh, precipitates uh, out of the atmosphere. And for uh, in some of the rescue work, uh, in the early reports on bodies, they report initially that Africville, the um, black community uh, in the North End, had been completely wiped out because they thought so many of the bodies were in fact blacks, but they weren't. Um, they'd scrub them and discover that in fact, um, uh, they, they were white people, though Africville was uh, badly devastated. And I think there's uh, four uh, African Canadians who, who were killed in the explosion. There's also a, a small Mi'kmaq community on the other side of the harbor that's effectively wiped out. And again, this is just being recognized now. And Joe in 2007, I wish he had brought it out earlier. In 2007, he was ahead of the times in recognizing these aspects. Uh, there's been more work done now, but still Joe wraps up this work very nicely. And uh, just my last question is, so if somebody wants to get the book, I believe it's out in November, uh, where can they get the book? Where they, can they contact you if they have any questions or anything like that? Uh, yeah, how does everybody kind of find the book and you? Uh, yes, well, the, um, yeah, it's distributed through the Wilfrid Laurier University Press, who have very good distribution through all the regular outlets, uh, Indigo Canada, uh, Amazon Canada. And in fact, in these grim talk about weird, sad times. Um, uh, it's probably wisest order online through uh, amazon.ca or indigo.ca. Um, and if they want to get in touch with me, I'm at Wilfrid Laurier and I'm right there, public person through Wilfrid Laurier. So it's uh, rsarty, R-S-A-R-T-Y at wlu.ca. And when I type, I, I, I don't have uh, still the remnants of my uh, Nova Scotia twang. So maybe they'll understand me even more clearly when I speak to them. No worries. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roger. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. Again, you can support the podcast at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.